this week, God of the Underdogs. We're in week number four, and uh, this is the next to the last week, so next week will be the last week of God of the Underdogs, and you don't want to miss next week, okay? Not only for baby dedications, but also for the last week of God of the Underdogs. But when we think about underdogs, we all like that idea of the underdog pulling up the upset, right? I mean, underdog is that word, that theme that we find a lot in the sports era, Uh, You know, LSU came in as an underdog yesterday, even though they were ranked higher than Alabama. They were still a a six-and-a-half-point underdog, and yet they came and they won, and it's awesome, right? And so we always, uh, you know, like that idea of an underdog. When we opened up the series, we talked about a couple of uh, famous underdog stories. We talked about Buster Douglas defeating Tyson in 90, and we also talked about the miracle on ice tremendous underdogs, but yet they pulled through, they got the victory, and there's just something about an underdog that we're drawn to, and I believe the reason for that is, is because in some shape, form, or fashion, we all feel like we're underdogs. We feel like we're underdogs. Whether you feel like an underdog now, you have, I guarantee you felt like an underdog at some point in your life. Maybe when you look in the mirror, you see any number of excuses why you could not or should not be the one who accomplishes something great. And throughout this series, I'm challenging you and encouraging you to rise up in the face these underdog excuses head on and get moving full speed in the direction of your dream and the destiny that is on your life. You see, when we look in Scripture, every person that God used in Scripture was an underdog. Nobody was looked at as like they're a favorite to win this particular situation. Every person that God used in a great way was an underdog. And every person that God used had a justifiable excuse for why he or she could not or should not be used used by God to accomplish great things. So just to kind of give you a roadmap of where we've been, week number one we talked about David, David the greatest king of Israel. And yet, when he was getting anointed king, he didn't even make the roll call. His dad didn't even think highly enough of him to say, hey, you could potentially be a king. Instead, he left him out in the field to tend sheep. And so David could have used the excuse, I'm not qualified. But instead, he chose to rise up and face that excuse head on. He goes on to face Goliath, and then he becomes the greatest king that Israel had ever had. In week number two, we talked about Paul, the the, 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 this Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You see, before he was Paul, he was Saul. And Saul was one who would go and persecute believers. And so God said, hey, like, he's got passion. It's just directed towards the wrong thing. And I like the passion, so let's knock him off his donkey and let's get him directed in the right direction. And so that's what he did. And so Paul could have used the excuse, my past is too bad, but he didn't. And then last week, we talked about the excuse that nobody recognizes my potential. And we talked about Jesus, about how his parents didn't recognize his potential when he was 12 years old. We talked about how even when he got onto the public scene, how his brothers and his sisters did not see his potential, how the Pharisees didn't see his potential. We talked about the life of Joseph, too, and talking about how his family uh, did not see his potential. And yet, he went through a time of being a slave. He was, also, he was also a prisoner. And then he gets called into Pharaoh's court to interpret a dream 
and then he's put second in charge in Egypt. You see, we talked about how a dungeon season prepares us for the palace. So this week, we look at the excuse, my resources are too scarce. My resources are too scarce. Now, we're not just talking about money, uh, but we're talking about any kind of resource. Maybe you think, I don't have enough time to do something great. Maybe you say, I don't have enough finances to do something great. I don't have enough of whatever. You fill in the blank, but you say, my resources are too scarce. And today we're going to look at someone in Scripture that could have very well used that excuse and been justified in using that excuse, but instead he said, I'm not going to stay in that excuse. I'm going to rise up. I'm going to challenge that excuse head on. And he goes on to do great things. And I'm talking about a person by the name of Gideon. You see, in Judges chapter 6, we find the story of our underdog, Gideon. Now, let me set up the scene for you before we start reading Scripture this morning. Where we're at in this time is that Israel, who is God's chosen people in the Old Testament, they're in slavery to a group of people called the Midianites. Now, the Midianites, they were so ruthless that the Israelites were living in mountains, caves, and makeshift tents just to avoid their oppressors. I mean, it was a bad situation. The Midianites were bullies, and they bullied them and destroyed the Israelites' crops. The Midianites stole their dignity and their livelihood. But worst of all, they had stole their hope. They had stolen their hope. Now let's think about this for a minute. This is the Israelites who have already come and conquered the promised land. Their promised land. The one that God promised to them. The land that was flowing with milk and honey. The one that produced crops that were larger than they had ever seen before. This was supposed to be the the paradise on earth, if you will, for them. And yet because of the place that they find themselves in, which was a place of disobedience, which we'll talk about in just a minute, Now they find themselves in slavery to a group called the Midianites. The Israelites had truly hit rock bottom. And when they hit rock bottom, they did the only thing that they knew how to do, which was to cry out to God for help. And that's where we pick it up in Judges chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And it says this, Midian so impoverished the Israelites, that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God, Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. You see, when the Israelites cried out, God sent a prophet. We don't know what this prophet's name was. He was an unnamed prophet, and he begins to speak to them, and he begins to talk to them about, hey, listen, don't you remember when God delivered you out of Egypt? Don't you remember how God brought you to this promised land? The land that you actually live in right now, but you're enslaved in right now. I mean, just can you imagine? And so, he sends this prophet 
who speaks to the people, and he would soon send Gideon, who would become the judge over them. And this is what we have to realize, that whenever people are in trouble, God's answer is often to find a leader to step in and to change the plight. Like, like it's oftentimes that when there is a big problem that is going on, God sends a person. He chooses to partner with people like you and I. I don't understand it. If I were God, I probably would not do it that way, and that is why I'm not God. Because I would be so impatient with somebody like me because I'm hard-headed. I'm hard-headed. There's a lot of times where I just... It just, I'm not going to do it. Anybody else like that? So there's times where you feel like God is speaking to you, sharing something with you, calling you to something, and yet you remain hard-headed, like me, and choose not to walk that way. See, if I were God, I would just be like, let it just, if I want it to happen, it's going to happen. But God, in His grace has given you and I something called free will. And He wants to partner with us. He wants to build relationship with you and I. He wants to love you. He wants to build purpose inside of you. He wants to get potential that He placed there when He created you to come to the surface so that you can do something great for Him. So God spoke two things through this unnamed prophet to remind them of His love, number one, and of His power, number two. You see, God would not deliver the Israelites out of Egypt without loving them. So what the prophet was telling the Israelites when they cried out, now remember, they've hit rock bottom. They cried out, the prophet says, God still loves you. Even in the midst of your disobedience, God still loves you. And he also reminded them of his power, saying, God got you through back then, He will get you through today because our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God spoke through the prophet the revelation of the real problem. You see, it wasn't the Midianites who were so strong. It was that Israel was so disobedient. Israel thought the problem was the Midianites, but the real problem was Israel. This is something that I feel like a lot of us struggle with. And I actually had this conversation this morning with somebody. You know, we have this thing called a spirit, and we also have this thing called flesh. And these two things, especially when we come into relationship with God, they war against each other. And it's a battle that you will always face as long as you're on this side of heaven. It is a war between spirit and in a war between flesh. And the flesh doesn't like what the Spirit's doing, and the Spirit doesn't like what the flesh is doing. So they're always coming and hitting together. And the problem is, is that so many of us, we succumb to the flesh instead of succumbing to the Spirit. And so when we do that, then we get all bent out of shape, and then we start wagging our finger at the devil saying, oh, the devil made me, or the devil did this, or the devil did that. Quit giving the guy too much credit, because a lot of the times we find ourselves in the situations that we're in under our own doing. The other thing about it is, is that when you have a mountaintop experience and you're like the king of the world, right? And you're just like, man, God is moving. I had a major breakthrough. I had phenomenal 
time with God. That's when the flesh is going to get the angriest it will get. And that's why you see so many people go from a mountaintop to a valley like that. I mean, if we want to use football today, since we're all about football, right? It's like, man, LSU right now is on the mountaintop, right? I mean, this is eight years coming. Eight years. Eight years. When I think about that, my son wasn't even around the last time LSU beat Alabama. Like, But the thing about it is, is that they still have Ole Miss, Arkansas, and Texas A&M. Now, you can sit there and say, they're all bad. And they are all bad. They're not good teams. But the thing about it is, is that it's those teams that can pose the biggest problem. Because you've had a mountaintop experience, and it's the thing that shouldn't defeat you that ends up defeating you. And that's what happens in our spiritual lives so many times is that we have this major breakthrough and then all of a sudden the something that is so small, something that should not defeat us, rises up and gets victory in a moment. And that's where Israel finds themselves. They experienced the, 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 the breakthrough of the, the world history. When they got delivered out of Egypt. Then they started messing it up for themselves. And then they had to go through the wilderness for 40 years. Then Joshua comes along. And we finally get into the promised land. Everything's great, right? Major high. And now boom. Because of their disobedience. They are now slaves in their own promised land. We got too many believers today who are enslaved in their own promised land. Because they've allowed their flesh to overcome their spirit. But one thing that I love about this picture that we read about in Judges chapter 6 is that it's a picture of grace in the Old Testament. Because if you think about Old Testament and you read the Old Testament, all you think about is judgment, right? I mean, it's like God with his, with his bazooka up there just ready to annihilate anybody that disobeys him. I mean, we're talking about a whole generation of people when they got delivered out of Egypt that he just opened up the earth and just swallowed them. So when we think about Old Testament, we think, man, judgment. But we should think about how good God is in his grace. His grace is just as evident in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. And this is a picture of grace because it's a picture of people that don't deserve deliverance, and yet God is about to bring it. See, some of you are in this place today, and you don't feel like you deserve deliverance, and so you're going to stay paralyzed in it because your flesh keeps telling you a lie. And I'm here to tell you today, that lie is a lie. Let it get off of you and understand that irregardless of your disobedience, if you will just get humble enough to cry out to God, He will answer, and He won't answer with judgment. He will answer with grace. Now, I'm not here to tell you that that means that all of the, uh, uh, of the consequences just fall off. You're still going to have to deal with some of those consequences. It just is the way that it is. But at least you can go through those consequences with a victory mindset and not a defeated mindset. 
you can go through those consequences with peace, knowing that God has the ability to work all things out for the good of those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. So it's a picture of grace. Israel is in the spot they're in because of their own doing, and yet God still sends a man named Gideon to deliver them. So this Gideon, I mean, if we, now I know some of you are Bible scholars, and so you already know the story. But for those of us that don't, just, or if you do, just act like you don't. But here's the thing. When we think about, man, God's about to send somebody, you think like he's about to send Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, right? Ripped up guy, I'll be back. You know, I mean, like, it's happening, right? Like, it's going to happen. He's sending in Rambo. I mean, what's that, what, what's that movie where they get all the old guys together that used to be buff and then Expendables? Yeah, it's like an Expendables movie. Like, you think they're about to come at you, after you, you know? I mean, like, I appreciate Sylvester Stallone being 80 years old and wanting to be Rambo again. I mean, like, come on. But when we think about this, it's like, man, Rambo's coming. Gideon is Rambo. But Gideon. Must have been a man of courage, right? Must have been a man of boldness, right? Well, let's see how this story continues in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak, under the oak, where his son Gideon, or belong, uh, the oak uh, that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon, okay, so let's connect those two. Joash is uh, the father of Gideon. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I know that's not something that we do on a daily basis, so we might skip over that and think that that's normal. But let's think about that, threshing wheat in a wine press. The last time I checked, you made wine out of a wine press, not bread. Like, what's the deal here? Like, he was, he was doing that. He was hiding the wheat in a place that he thought the Midianites wouldn't look. So he was hiding. He was in hiding. So he's got no courage. He doesn't want to be found. He doesn't want the Midianites to steal what little wheat he has. So he hides himself in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. In verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Here's my thing. So many times we think that we're in a place where God is not. But he's always there. You see, Gideon was trying to hide. Maybe he was even trying to hide from God, but God was already there. God's always there. And he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So here we have Gideon who's been living an impoverished, oppressed reality for seven years. For seven years he's been living life like this picture that we just read. I don't think mighty warrior was the first thing that he was feeling when he was in that wine press. I think he saw himself as an underdog. I think he saw himself as defeated. I think he saw himself as discouraged. I think he saw himself as disheartened. I think he saw himself as this is just the way life is going to be. This is the hand that's been dealt to me. I believe that's what he was seeing. That's what he was feeling. Not mighty warrior. And how do we know that? Because of his response in verse 13. Pardon me, Lord. I mean, can you imagine? Like, this dude's got attitude. Like, seriously? Come on, Gideon. You're talking to the Lord here. And you say, pardon me, Lord. You know, it wasn't, 
pardon me. No, it was, pardon me, Lord. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Man, how many times have we asked that question in our lives? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. I mean, this is an appropriate response, right? I mean, let's, 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 let's get real here. I mean, nothing that Gideon said is necessarily false. I mean, the Lord's been nowhere to be found up until this point. Gideon's like, man, like, like if we're really your people, then where have you been? Because what Gideon saw in reality wasn't matching up with, the, with what the angel was telling him. You see, the angel was saying, you're a mighty warrior. But reality said underdog. Reality said slave. Reality said defeated. Reality said discouraged. Reality said hopeless. Maybe you felt the same way. Maybe you've been burdened for some need. I don't think Gideon was like, man, I, 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 don't, like, I really don't want to help my people. I think something on the inside of him said, man, if there was just something I could do, I would do it. But I can't. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you've been burdened for some need, some issue, some wrong needing to be made right. But you've hesitated to step up and do something about it because you don't feel like the mighty warrior you think it will take to get the job done. You see, Gideon didn't feel like being the man, but God felt differently about him. Somebody needs to hear this. You feel a certain way today, but that's not how God feels about you. But just because you feel disheartened, discouraged, hopeless, doesn't mean that that's how God feels about you. You're no longer, can, can, can I say this? You are no longer allowed to let your circumstances keep you from doing something great for God. I'm speaking that over you. You are no longer allowed to let your circumstances keep you from doing something great for God. Your circumstances may tell you that you're a slave, that you're abandoned, that you're a nobody, but God says that you're a mighty warrior. You are the one that God is choosing to right the wrong. You want to know why? Because if people, as people of faith, as people who say they believe in Jesus, we don't live by our feelings, we live by our faith. And that's what I believe God was doing this morning in, in these altars, is that God was getting you from a place of wishing that something would be the case and to, to, to having faith that it's actually going to happen. You see, faith is not the evidence of things that we see. It's the evidence of those things that we hope for because we have confidence that God is going to make them happen. We don't live by our feelings. We live by our faith. Then it continues in verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go and see. The, God didn't even respond to Gideon's criticism. I need you to catch this. He didn't even bother to address well, you've abandoned us. Where have you been? No, that's not what he says. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? You see, God was telling Gideon that his power was with him and that is all you need to win. Because here's the equation that you need to realize is that you 
plus God equals majority. You plus God equals majority. So then we continue the story in verse 15. Pardon me, Lord. There he goes again. This guy needs an attitude adjustment. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. Now he's really pouring it on. Because now he's saying, you know what? Why are you even talking to me? I'm not even, like, I'm the least of my family. But guess what? My family is the least of the, of, of, of the clan here. Like, like, like let, let me tell you, I ain't even anywhere close to being the guy that you should be talking to. You should be talking to the guy that's from Judah's clan and that is in this family because they're, they're the top. They're the top of the food chain. Like, I'm the bottom of the food chain. Can I tell you, stop telling yourself that you're the tail. God didn't call you to be the head. It didn't call you to be the tail. He called you to be the head. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. You see, Gideon had doubts. He had doubts. Just like many of us have doubts at times. Like many of us have doubts right now in this moment about some situation, a circumstance, a relationship that you're in right now. You have doubts, but can I tell you that God needs to do what he did for Gideon, and that is to get you past, to get him past his doubts. Because that's the only way that God was going to be able to help him through this, or it's the only way that he's going to be able to help you through whatever you're dealing with today. So now we begin to see something shift inside of Gideon. There's some confidence that's brewing because of what we read in verse 17. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes. I'm so glad he didn't say pardon me again. But yet he said, if now I have found favor in your eyes. You can tell something is beginning to shift. Just like I feel like something's beginning to shift in your own life right now as you're hearing this message. Something's beginning to shift. You're shifting from a place of saying, I am the least. And now you're saying, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe what God is saying is truth. Because we have to believe that God is truth. Give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. So this is, this is what, he doesn't just leave it there. I mean, he gets specific. In verse 18, he says, please don't go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So Gideon goes to prepare and bring an offering. And when he comes back, God is there. And then we read about this response that God gives in verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace. I need you to hang on to that word. Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Let me give you two quick things about this. The first one is this, is that Gideon asked for a sign, right? He asked for a sign. He said, stay here until I can come back with an offering. Stay here. Gideon asked for a sign. Can I tell you that when we feel that God might be in something, that it's okay to ask God for a sign to give us confirmation. My favorite story about this, it's not even part of it. I'm a bystander, but a great bystander. 
like a very blessed bystander because of this sign. But when Christina and I met each other, things moved rather fast. Like we met in July, we started dating in August, got engaged in September, and married the following June. So in 11 months, we met, dated, engaged, married. And when you know, you know. Just get it, right? So that's what we did. But I knew, but she was a little bit more hesitant than I was. And so here's the thing. Here's what happened is that, like, we, uh, she had just come out of a relationship. I had never really been in a relationship because I was the guy who, well, we won't go there. But anyways, uh, I was the big friend. You know what I mean by big friend? I was the big friend. I don't want to be like, like I don't want to, uh, anyway, I, I was the big friend. Oh, yeah, I was in the friend zone all the time. It was great, though. You know, I just looked at the glass half full and said, man, I get to hang out with everybody. You know what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not limiting myself here. So, anyways, friend zone. So, when we got together, like, Christina was, like, very bold. Still is bold, by the way. And so she just, she just came right out and said, I'm not playing around here. So if this is going to be the case, like, we're going to pray about this. Like, I mean, she went straight spiritual on me. I was like, come on, girl. So, like, we took the next week. We, didn't see, we fasted from each other. Man, now, this is really getting spiritual. So, like, we didn't talk to each other, didn't see each other. We prayed, 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 right? We get to the end of that week. We come back together, and we're like, okay, what did God share with you? All right. And so... She shares something, I share something, it was the same thing. Crazy, right? So, but that wasn't enough for Christina. I'm like, what? Like, come on. Like, come on. I don't know, maybe she thought I was copycatting her story. I don't know. But like, the thing about it was, it wasn't enough for her. So here's what she said. She goes, God, I need a sign that this is, that this is him. And so she goes, I need to see a butterfly. But not just like a butterfly flying in the, in the, in the wind. I need to see a butterfly in an unusual way. Okay? So she, she prays this prayer. And then the next, uh, that, that following Sunday at church, because uh, we served on staff at, at this church together, and um, this girl comes that's a friend of hers and uh, says, I, I just, I really feel like awkward giving this to you, but like I felt like God wanted me to give this to you. And so like it's a pencil. And hopefully you'll know what this means. So she gives her a pencil, butterflies all over the pencil with a wired butterfly coming out of the eraser. Now, see, here's the thing. It's okay to ask for a sign. When we are, like, thinking that God might be in something, that's what she was thinking, God might be in something. I'm like, God is in something. (laughs) Come on. See the light. But when we think God is in something, I'm sorry, when God is in something, it's okay to ask for a sign because God will give it to you as confirmation. And then here's the other thing that I see from this is the Lord's response to Gideon was peace. It was peace. Can I tell you that Christina had a new level of peace when she saw that butterfly. And then she was like, can we get married tomorrow? I'm like, slow it down. You got to finish school. Like, I'm not going to be your excuse for not finishing school. You're going to finish school. But you see, peace. There's something about God's peace when we're going through things. When things look chaotic, but we have peace, man, just give me peace. 
That's all I need. Just give me peace so I can walk through it. Even though I walk through the valley of the, battle, of the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Why? Because you are peace. Now Gideon has some confidence and boldness. And the next thing he does is he goes into the center of his town, tears down the altar to the false god, and built an altar to God. And when this happened, the townspeople wanted to kill him. But his father came to his defense. You can read that on your own time in Judges chapter 6, 25 through 35. Why nobody's made a movie about this? I don't know. But like, I'm like, come on. Like this dude goes into the middle of the town, just, just starts annihilating the altar. Now he did it at nighttime, so I don't know if he was really that courageous or not. But hey, he did it anyway. Townspeople are like ready to stone him. And his dad's like, hey, whoa, wait up. Wait a minute, wait a minute. If you really believe that the false god is a real god, then he'll come and avenge himself. Yeah, but if it's not, then just let it be. False God wasn't doing nothing because he isn't nothing. And so after this, Gideon's next step was to assemble his army. So he goes around the town. He starts recruiting some men to get on this army. So he gets 32,000 men. Like we think, man, that's a lot of people, right? It's a lot of people until you realize that the Midianites had 135,000. So now, hey, they're really underdogs, okay? So God, uh, so Gideon was an under-resourced underdog. So he could have had the excuse that says, God, God, all I got is 32,000 men. They got 135. There's no way we're winning. There's just no way. But instead, he did what he did before, and he asked God for a sign. He asked him for two, two signs. And it was this whole thing with the fleece. Like, God, okay, I'm going to put a fleece out, and I want the dew to only rest on the fleece, and then I want the grass to stay dry. So he did that. He goes out, he finds that the fleece is totally soaked and everything else around it is dry. Then he says, I want the opposite done for the next go around. I want the grass to be dewy and the fleece to be dry. And that's what happens. So now there's ultimate confidence. You got you to have this feet. You know, if you're Gideon, you're like, man, I'm ready. Bring it on. 32,000 against 130. We got this. We got this, right? But then look at what happens in Judges chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all of his men camped at the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. Oh my goodness. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. Are you serious right now, God? Like, really, come on, let's, let's have a conversation here. The last time I checked my math book, like 32,000 is way below 135,000. I'm sure that we can still give you credit when we win. But God was saying, nope, nope, sorry, not going to happen. So he goes, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave. So 22,000 left and 10,000 remained. If you're Gideon, you're like, come on, God, you just cut me at my knees, man. Like, come on. But wait, there's more. It's like a bad infomercial. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin, out, uh, will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps uh, from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them 
drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got on their knees to drink. And the Lord said with Gideon, with these 300 men that have lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. So God got the number down to 300. 300. That means 135,000 to 300. At this point, you have to ask yourself, why did God do this? Why did he get it down to 300? There's two things. Number one is that God didn't want any doubt as to who would be responsible for the victory, that he was going to be responsible for it. Sometimes when you feel like God is taking away things, he's just wanting you to realize that it's going to be all him. He doesn't want you to feel like it's in your own ability because then you're going to leave him on the side of the road and keep trucking. You've got to understand that he is the one who has the victory. And here's the other reason. Is the other 31,700 of these men had a defeated mindset. They might have originally signed up for it, but then they had buyer's remorse. That's the reason that 22,000 of them left in the get-go. It's because they're like, I'm too scared. I signed up, I thought it was going to be great, but now I don't want anything to do with it. They had a defeated mindset. They didn't think they had a chance to win. So rather than stand up for what was right, they had just resolved themselves that they were going to be slaves of the Midianites forever and that nothing would ever change for them. Their hopelessness was greater than their hope of changing their circumstances. Can I ask you a question today? Is your hopelessness greater than your hope? The sad reality is, is that many people today have become resolved to that same conclusion. Rather than believe there is a God who will fight for them and defend them and help them create the kind of change they long to see, they just shut down. They have given up hope that things could possibly be different for them. Can I tell you this? If, if, if you can dream a better reality for yourself, then stand up and fight. Stand up and fight. For 300 men... They believed enough to dream a dream that there was a better reality, that God could come through for them. You see, God can do more with 300 people who believe wholeheartedly in what he can do than with 31,700 people that don't believe he can't do anything. Your unbelief will stop God from moving on your behalf. But you see, it doesn't matter how high you think the odds are stacked against you. We serve a God who is fighting for you. And you can do this. You may be the underdog, but you're serving the God of the underdogs who has a way of bringing freedom to the captives and victory to the under-resourced. Don't forget that you plus God equals majority. Then how the story plays out, Gideon's still like, man, like, uh, he's sleeping one night and God says, get up. Get up, I need you to take a couple guys with you. I need you to go scout out the Midianite camp. So he goes there. And you know what happens? This was crazy. Read this in chapter 7. It's a great nighttime story. Like, if you you read it, it says that when they are spying on the Midianite camp, 
the Midianites are absolutely terrified because they're having dreams that Israel is about to defeat them. Now, isn't that funny how God works? I mean, he's just whittled the army down to 300. You're like, 300 to 135, I don't know how this is going to happen. But then God, in, in who he is, he has a way of keeping you motivated on the journey. Because he'll give you insight into what the enemy wants to do. Why does he give you that insight? Because he wants to give you a strategy to get around it. So let's see how this plan plays out as Christina comes back up. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, this is in verse 15, he bowed down and worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and he called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Say, what? What? Like, like do we not have, like, bow and arrows? Do, do, do we not have one of those, like, like, catapult things that we can, like, send, like, fireballs over with? Like, trumpets? And, and jars with, 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 with matches in it? Like, are you serious? Verse 17, watch me, he told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do as exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the, mid, of, the, of the middle watch just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets, smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow and they shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their own swords. Wow. Another reason that I'm thankful I'm not God, because that's not the strategy that I would use, that we're just going to surround the camp, break some clay pots, and then we're going to play trumpets. And look like a wild guy with a with a torch in our other hand. Because that's what was going on. And yet what God did is He took that and He and He and, and, and He partnered with them. He just told them, hold your position, blow the trumpet, smash the pot, and watch. And they did that, and then the Midianites turned on each other and killed themselves. Crazy. Crazy, right? That's not my plan. Would never be my plan. But that was God's plan. You see, some of us, we get so into this place where we think, man, God's plan has at least got to look similar to my plan. When in most cases, His plan doesn't look anything close to your plan. But here's the thing about God's plan and what it says to us. is God's plan says to us, God... 
God's saying this to us through his plan. Either you're going to trust me or you're going to trust nothing. You're going to trust me or you're going to trust nothing. Man. The excuses. My resources are too scarce. Gideon. I'm the least. My clan is the least of all clans, and I'm the least in my family. He had everything going against him, and yet that was the very one that God found. Threshing wheat in a wine press. And he says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Can I speak that to you today? That the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. There's some dreams that are in this place today that need to come alive. And they're going to come alive when you believe what he's speaking to you in this moment. That the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Can you stand all over this place today?